You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Well, good morning, church. If you have a Bible, grab it and turn to Genesis uh, chapters 10 and 11. Uh, guess my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here and have the opportunity to open up the scriptures for us regularly and love to do so. And uh, we're going to continue in our series uh, through the book of Genesis, which we have titled God's Story of Creation to Restoration. Uh, we normally walk through books of the Bible together because we want to know what God has to say and not what I have to say. We believe that this moment when we continue in worship, we call it preaching because the Bible truly has something to say. And so we come to it to submit our lives to it to see who God is and to see who he has called us to be. And so if you, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those hard-covered Bibles and uh, follow along with us. I think this time of the year, the end of March and the beginning of April, is the best time of year. Not because it's particularly springtime, but because you have March Madness, the end of the NBA season, and baseball just started. I mean, it's wonderful, right? I mean, you got three of the best sports starting right on time. I mean, it's wonderful. Right, so uh, as you know, the Final Four was last night. Well, if, if you didn't, the Final Four was last night. And uh, the, the championship game will be on Monday. Unfortunately, they're going to start at 9.20, and I'm going to be in the bed. But it's the best part uh, season of the year because what we see in these sports as uh, the end of the college basketball season, you have the ending or, or the ramping up of the playoffs in, in the NBA. Uh, you see this, this idea of rivalry. And rivalry. Now, rivalry obviously can be a bad thing, but there also can be good aspects of it. When we think of a rivalry, there's competition. There's a, there's two teams. There's two individuals, or there's two uh, folks competing towards one end goal. They're trying to win something. What we've noticed here in the story of Genesis is there is a rivalry. Uh, you have God's people, and you have the serpent's people. You have uh, God's people who he said, I will bring a son, a seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And you have that serpent, Satan, who is, who is beckoning people into his family to call them into his way of life so that he sees humanity destroyed. And so there is a rivalry that has taken place. And we as God's people, must understand our part in the story. That we come knowing who our God is. But see, here, here's, the, here's the thing. Although you may describe it as a rivalry, it's kind of one-sided. We know that our God wins in the end. And we know that our God is bringing His plans to completion. But there are many steps along the way. And here in Genesis chapter 10 and 11, what we see is God's working out those steps for His plan. So here's what we're going to see through these, uh, through the whole of chapter 10 and the first part of chapter 11. Here's what we're going to see this morning. God commanded Noah's sons and their offspring to multiply over the earth, but humanity united together to make themselves great against God. Now, if you're a disciple, if you've called the name of Jesus, we talk about making mature disciples a lot because we believe this aligns with what God's plan actually is. And so if you are a disciple this morning, what should you do? 
You have been invited into God's kingdom through Christ to make God's name great around the world. You've been invited to make the name of God great around the world. So let me ask you a question. Whose kingdom are you a part of? Uh, Whose team are you playing for? Whose kingdom are you promoting? As we know, God wins, but there is an opportunity for us to decide whose kingdoms we are promoting. Are we promoting God's kingdom or are we promoting our kingdom? And as we walk through our text this morning, I want those questions to be in front of your mind. As we consider Genesis 10 and the first part of 11, it's important to understand the connection that Moses is making between these two stories, these two chapters. Often they're seen as two separate things, two distinct pieces of of history. Instead, I believe they're part of actually the same story. You see, in 10, we see people, they have their own languages. And in 11, they have one language. They have the same language. So I think uh, that chapter 11, the first nine verses, are actually happening inside of chapter 10. It is the way in which the nations were spread. It is the way in which God made sure that His people did what they were supposed to. It gives the reason for why they were spread in chapter 10. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to walk through this passage, and then I want, as we uh, come to the end, I want to give us three reminders, and I'll tell you those when we get there. So I want to walk through the passage, explain some things, and I'll, then I want to really consider how do we make God's name great around the world. So first, let's look at the history of our world. The history, look at verse 1 of chapter 10. These are the family records of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And they also had sons after the flood. Now, what I'm going to show you, there are three sections in this chapter. There's three sons. And those three sections will be patterned after those sons of Noah. It's actually the only time that we see a genealogy about the sons of someone else. And so we come out of chapter 9, and Noah and his family have come off the boat. Remember, Noah's supposed to be the second Adam. He's supposed to cultivate worship. He's supposed to, to produce worshipers all around the world. But we encounter a problem, we saw this last week, that sin is still alive and well. Noah gets drunk. His son disgraces him. In the midst of Noah's reaction, remember last week, Noah curses his son Ham. And so Moses is doing something specific. He wants to hone in on the seed of promise. And through the spreading of these people, there are going to be two lines, remember? The seed of promise and the seed of the serpent. There will be blessing and there will be cursing. One of God and one of Satan. The promised seed, though, will not come from the nations that follow here in chapter 10. Now, I know when we come to genealogies, it's really easy to just jump right over these. And especially this one, because it may be some of the hardest names to pronounce in the entire Bible. Right? But there's so much packed here in these uh, verses and in this genealogy, and it provides really important pieces of information and connections that will help us. They're vital for us to trace the seed of promise. Where is the one who's coming to crush evil? And chapter 10 is vastly important. 
The first piece of information for us is that chapter 10 is unique. There's nothing like it. If you were to take, and don't do this, but if you were to take uh, chapter 10 in your Bible and to rip it out, it would be the only piece of history that contains what this says. No other pieces of other information from other cultures has what we have. Moses is telling us this is the true story. This is where all people came from. This is legitimate history. And he wants us as his readers to understand where do we fit in God's story. For Israel, remember I've told you, they're, they're probably hearing the uh, they're probably hearing Genesis as they're either at Mount Sinai or about to enter into the promised land. God has rescued them from the slavery of, of Egypt. And now they, God is making them into a nation. So they're hearing this about these nations. But for us in the 21st century, after Christ, we are a part of God's kingdom. Not any other nation or kingdom. We submit our lives to Jesus. And so, look there at verse 2. We're going to come to the first section. The first section, Noah's son Japheth, who received a part of the blessing. So look at there, verse 2. Japheth's sons, Gomer, Magog. You've heard these names. right? And it lists all these names of Japheth's sons. Look at verse 5. From these descendants, the peoples of the coast and the islands spread out into their lands according to their clans in their nations. Understand what Moses is doing. In their nations. He's showing us where these nations came from. Each with its own language. And so Japheth's sons, they, they multiply and they spread out and they potentially spread out all the way east to Russia and China. So Japheth's sons, very quickly, Moses gives a very small treatment of, of Japheth. Right? He's the one that gets to be a part of the blessing of uh, Shem's God. Right, He gets to partake of that. So M Moses gives very little detail to those people. So jump into the second section here. And Moses is going to give us more information on the son Ham, who was cursed. Look at verse 6. Ham, Ham's sons, Cush, Mizoram, Put, and Canaan. You remember that name, Canaan, from last week. Now look at verse 8. Cush fathered Nimrod, who began to be a powerful in the land. He was a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. Right, so I don't know about you, but when I grew up, uh, Nimrod was kind of this, you, you called somebody that if they were kind of being an idiot um, or, or not, not smart or something like that. So I, for whatever reason, Nimrod was, was made uh, to be something that would be not good for us to call each other. But here, Nimrod is actually a good thing. He's a powerful hunter. He's intellectual. It says, this is why it is said, like Nimrod, a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord clearly sees this man, and he is powerful. And look at verse 10. His kingdom started with Babylon, another name that we know. Erect, Akkad, and Kalna, and the land of Shinar. Now, that land of Shinar, we're going to come back to that. If you remember what Stephen just read for us, we're going to come back to Shinar in just a moment. So hold that name in your mind. Verse 11, from the land he went to Assyria, and he built Nineveh. These are all names that we know. right? Assyria will conquer the people of God after they conquer Babylon. And so these are names that, that they're going to be aware of and they're going to be battling against. And even Nineveh, who God calls Jonah to go to. Now skip down to verse 15. 
Canaan, remember, this was the one who was cursed because of Ham, fathered Sidon, his firstborn in Heth, as well as the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Gigrasites, and the Hivites, and the Archites, and the Sinites, and the Termites. Now, did, I, did, you, did you pay attention to that? That's right. Just making sure you're paying attention. Afterward, the Canaanites' clan scattered. Look at verse 19. The Canaanite border went from Sidon going to, towards Gerar as far as Gaza and going to, towards Sodom, Gomorrah, and Adama, and Zeboim as far as Lacia. So what we see here, what's important, look how much emphasis Moses gives to Canaan. Right? All these ites are going to be people that the Israelites must remove from the land. And so he tells them, these are the nations, these are the people that you're going to come up against. And these are the people that will rival you, that will try to oppose you. And then Moses comes to the third son, Shem, where there is blessing. Look at verse 21. And Shem, Japheth's older brother, also had sons. Shem was the father of all the sons of Eber. Shem was... Shem's sons were Alam, Ashur, uh, Aprakot, Lud, and Aram. Aram's sons were Uz, Hul, Gaither, and Mash. Look at verse 24. Aprakashad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber, and Eber had two sons. One name was Peleg, for during his days the earth was divided. His brother was named Joktan. Now, now, really quickly, here in verse 24 and 25, we see two men, Peleg and his father. These are going to be important as we look at Abraham. And so what Moses is doing, very quickly, he's giving us some names to remember when we get to the end of Genesis chapter 11. This is where the seed of promise is driving to. But these are people. They're not nations. I'll skip down to verse 31. These are Shem's sons by their clans according to their languages in their lands and their nations. You see that these people have been spread. They have a different language and they are clearly identifiable. So it's, a, it's amazing. Or look at verse 32. These are the clans of Noah's sons according to their family records and their nations. The nations only are spread out from these after the flood. As amazing as this history is, the important thing to remember is that not one of these nations will be the line of the promised one. Will not be a line of the son that is promised. God will make his own nation. God will bring a nation from the smallest of opportunity. And it's important that we trace our history back though to Noah. To Noah's sons and to Noah and then to Adam. Right, there is one human race. There is nothing different about us in the sense of where we come from and who we are and that we were made in the image of God. This is why racism is so horrific. Because what it says is there's something lower about someone else who is made in the image of God. We all trace our line back to Noah and then back to Adam. And ultimately, to be made in God's image. Now let's turn to chapter 11 and see how these nations spread out. Uh, this is, uh, there's two parts to this story. Right? The people came together and God came down. So look at chapter 11, verse 1. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. Remember, all right, so Moses, he's, he's coming back around. He's saying, this is how we got chapter 10. 
He's zooming in for a second. Verse 2, as people migrated from the east, they found a a valley in the land of Shinar. Now this is where the descendants of Ham were. And they settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make oven fire bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. This phrase, let us come, is very important. The focus is on their own efforts and ingenuity, not on God. Now consider these bricks for just a second. To us, they don't seem like much. When we, when we look at a brick, you're like, okay, that's great. Our building is, is covered in bricks. That's pretty standard. There's nothing very uh, great and grand about that. But this was new technology of their day. Some of you have been looking into AI. You're, you've been on, online and watched what it can do. It's similar. These bricks begin to change how societies and nations are formed. It's extremely important. It was going to make life very different. In their mind, they didn't need God. They could build their own cities and their own nations. Their pride has now set in. And let me pause for just a moment about this brick. What do you think Israel thought or felt when Moses wrote down, when he said, that these people made their city with bricks. What does that remind them of? Egypt. It reminds them of slavery. It reminds them of the oppression that Pharaoh laid over them. So these bricks are not good in the eyes of Israel. These bricks signal oppression and captivity. Pride often leads to the misuse of power. And So we're going to see what happens to this these people who come together. Now let's look at see how those bricks are used. Look at verse 4. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. These bricks are used to make a city and a tower. These nomads became settlers. And the story now is climaxing towards the tower. So when you hear the word city, when's the last time we heard that word in the the book of Genesis? It was in in chapter 4 when Cain built a city and named it after his son. Cities aren't a good thing at this point. Cities are a place of human uh, rebellion. Cain was supposed to be a wanderer on earth. He said, nope, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to build my own city. In the same way, these people said, we're going to build our own city. And so it's supposed to be a culmination of human ingenuity. It's going to be a place of of great power. But it's more than that. These people have refused God's command to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. In their pride, they have forsaken God's name and are seeking their own glory. But isn't isn't this what a city is supposed to do? When we build a great city and a monument or a tower, we're calling our, we're calling attention to that so that someone can receive fame. So that someone can be made great. Notice how they do it. They use these bricks. Forced labor to build a city, to defy God, and potentially even keep people in. Remember, a city means it's fortified, both on the inside and the outside. People aren't coming in. They don't need God. They're protected. But they also, the people can't leave. And so they begin to amass this pride and this power. And the purpose for their unity was to build this city and this tower. 
so that they had fame, so that the, so that the nations around them would look at them and say, look how great they are. And I want you to notice, and we'll come back to this in a minute, notice that it's driven by their fear at the end of verse 4. Let's do this so we will not be scattered. So these people have united together to make their own name great. Let's see how God responds. Look at verse 5. And then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. Don't miss the irony here. God goes to investigate. Not because he didn't know what was going on. He knew the tower was already there. That's why he goes down. So he, he goes down to this great, this great display of human ingenuity. Right? Moses goes out of his way to say this tower was built to the sky, but God has to come down. They were never going to reach God. They were never going to reach the heavens. No matter how tall they built this tower, they were never going to become like Him. They would never reach God-like status. Look at verse 6. The Lord said, If they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So God's response is to confuse their language. This will prevent them from working together. Verse 8, So the, from there the Lord scattered them throughout the, the earth and they stopped building the city. The Lord put a clear end to this rebellion. Look at verse 9. Therefore it's called Babylon. For the Lord confused their language of the whole earth and from, the, from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. They indeed make a name for themselves. Uh, they indeed uh, become famous, but it's not the ways in which they wanted Right, Their name is ironic. When they could only babble to one another in confusing languages, they would be called Babylon. These people, as they set themselves up against the Lord, all God has to do is to change their language and it's all, it all falls. It can't continue. And what we see here, we, we see in chapter 10 these nations that have spread. And we, particularly in chapter 11, we now see a nation who is trying to oppose God's commands and compose, oppose what He wants the world to look like. And we now have an opportunity to decide what kingdom we want to promote and whose name we want to promote. Whose name we want to make great. So I want to show us three reminders from our text today that will help us make God's name great around the world. First reminder. History will not remember our kingdoms. History will not remember our kingdoms. Now, God has blessed Noah. right? He's commanded him to spread across the earth. We get to chapter 10. God, God, God is going to do what He says. God fulfills His command to help guide the course of history. As I told you, here's the point. Nowhere in the annals of history do we find these nations not preserved in this way uh, of any kind. History is not concerned with our own names or accomplishments. Look there at that list though. God wants a diverse community of worshipers all around the world so that His name can be great. If we look around the world right now, we have brothers and sisters from different uh, cultures and different languages and different tribes. They are different than we are, but we have a unity with them in Christ. And we get to experience life with them. But Babel is saying, we don't want what God wants. 
We don't, we don't want that. We don't want there to be different people who get to worship God the same way we do. But again, here's the truth. None of these nations in chapter 10 will be the center of God's plan. Rather, God starts a kingdom from a small and unlikely place. History is moving towards God's kingdom and not ours. God doesn't need our kingdoms, personal or otherwise. Right? He doesn't need even this country. He doesn't need us. His history is moving toward His goals and His means. Then we must ask, whose family are we a part of? Whose kingdom are we a part of? Are we a part of the world's kingdom? Are we a part of the kingdom of Christ? This is what's true. Although, yes, we all come from the line of Noah and Adam. For us who are in Christ, we now have a new family. I have more in common with you through Christ than I do I have some of my own blood relatives who do not know Jesus. Let me say that again. I have more in common with you than some of my own family who do not know Jesus. That's how deep the relationships are. Because in Christ, we're brought into a new family by the blood of Christ. And now this is God's means to a world where all people, no matter who they are, can worship Him, who can hear the gospel. God's family will endure. It doesn't matter what comes. It doesn't matter what nations uh, rival against each other. It doesn't matter who stands up to go at war. It does not matter. God's kingdom will end stands. And we must make this the priority. Church, I think it's right for you, for us to consider what are our priorities. If this is the kingdom of God and God is going to, going to always be there and He's going to be the one in charge and His family is going to want, be the one who reigns with Him, then we must look at our priorities. Husbands, sit down with your wives and look. What are we spending our time on? What are we giving ourselves to? What, what, whose kingdom are we building? Sit down and look at what are we giving to? What is our time used for? Is it to build up our own kingdoms or is it to build up the kingdom of God? Sit down with your families. We must teach our children that the kingdom of God is our priority in this life. That we give ourselves to God's mission. You see, uh, in, in junior college, I did one year of junior college, had to do a family tree project for this sociology degree or, or class. And uh, I had, had, to, had to go and sit down with my grandmother and learn about uh, the, our family tree. You see, the problem was I didn't know anybody's name outside of uh, my grandparents. And uh, I, I, I do know uh, my mother's uh, grandmother's name. But outside of that, I didn't know anybody. I had to go ask her. At the end of the day, our own great-grandchildren will not remember our names. I'm not trying to be mean. That's just the reality of it. This is sad. But the church of God will always endure. When we get to the end of the book of Revelation, it's God and God's family, God's kingdom that stands. And we give ourselves to God's kingdom through our commitment to the local church by making mature disciples. That's why we are here. So may we give ourselves to these means so that we can see the end, which is God's kingdom all over the world. God being praised and God's name made great.
History won't remember us. But we can join with God by making His name great and thereby being brought into the story of God. But secondly, it gives us another reminder. Hubris is the rival of God's kingdom. Hubris is the rival of God's kingdom. Pride overflows here in the story. Pride and hubris overflow in the story. There's pride in their technology. There's pride in their power. There's pride in the potential. And they truly believe that they could build their own city for their own fame. Instead of the following God's commands, which was to multiply worshipers all over the earth, they decide to build their own kingdom for their own worship. Their pride leads to disobedience. But where does this pride come from? Pride is the response of fear, as I told you a few minutes ago in verse 4. Uh, they're insecure. They're worried about being spread across the earth. The, the basic characteristics of this culture are seen. They are anxious about being separated and disconnected. And their desire for fame leads them into pride. You see, a lot of times when we, we talk about what is, our, what is the core root of our sin, and when some of us, myself included, would struggle with pride. But underneath that pride, deeper than that, is something motivating that pride. And often, that is insecurity and fear. That our outward pride is just a really a hole of insecurity. That's exactly what happens here. They fear being scattered. And that fear drives them to pride, and it drives them to amass power. And in the end, their fear causes what they feared itself. Think about Anakin Skywalker. I know many of you are Star Wars fans. In the third episode of Star Wars, right, Anakin begins to have dreams about his, uh, his wife at this point, who she's gonna die, and he's, he's afraid to lose her. He's afraid that she's gonna die. And he's tempted by the dark side, and he, they say, we can help you. We can, we, we can help her. And so he turns to the dark side, and, and Anakin and Padme have a, have a altercation where he actually strangles her. He actually causes her to die. It's his fear that drove him to that very place. Our fear will drive us to do things and will actually cause what we fear. Instead, we must trust in God. We must trust that he, His plan is going to succeed. But, but it brings up a question. What does our culture fear? What does our culture fear? That we're not in control? That we don't have all the answers. There are underlying fears that all of us have. And when we share the gospel of people, those fears are going to come up. And we must be willing and ready and patient to answer those fears because our God answers them and provides a different way. Insecurity and fear will lead us to pride. And pride leads to the accumulation of power and fame. And instead of trusting God, by obeying His commands and receiving His blessing, these people seek their own means of security. Pride sets itself up against God. And the Scriptures tell us over and over again that God opposes the proud. But He's kind. He's merciful to the humble and the lowly. The story of Babel is an example to Israel so they would obey God. Uh, thereby, uh, if, if they obey God, they would then be able to be a blessing to the nations, to all those around them. 
You see the Tower of Babel, these people, nations cannot defy God long and survive. Blessing only comes through obedience. God's judgment was another act of mercy though. As He would prevent the most dangerous of circumstances, allowing these people to build their own kingdom and to live in sin, God spreads them out. And He removes the obstacle. And i got to ask again, how are we like the people of Babel? If I'm honest, this week, as I was studying and preparing and praying and processing through our passage, what I woke up thinking as I was on the road to a prison this week, all I could think about was how often recently I've been waking up and just going and just going and just going. Now one time here recently, have I stopped when I got up and thanked or prayed or confessed anything to the Lord to start my day? Whose kingdom am I building if I get up and do not acknowledge that God is the one who has given me breath to walk? Whose kingdom am I building if I never acknowledge what God is doing in our world? If I get up and never ask God to help me in whatever things that are in front of me, then who am I trusting in? Whose kingdom am I trying to build? How am I like Babel? I trust myself way more than I should. But we also, we resist God's plan. Oftentimes we resist God's plan for disciple making by being unwilling to share the gospel, letting our fears drive our insecurity in sharing the gospel. While we have churches that are not making disciples, we have churches who are not trying to seek the good of the world by proclaiming Jesus as the sovereign Lord and Savior. Churches become aquariums and not fishers of men. This is how we oppose God's plan. God's plan is for a renewed world to see everything brought back into relation with Him through the gospel. And this happens through disciples being multiplied and churches being planted. We oppose God when we oppose His plan. And if we ever do anything here that takes us off the track of making disciples and sending out churches and raising up people to be healthy members, then we might as well shut it all down. Because God will oppose that. Just like He opposed Babel. Now, if history will not remember our kingdoms and if hubris is the rival of God's kingdom, how should we respond as God's people? It's our third reminder. Humility is the response of kingdom people. Humility is the response of kingdom people. You see, Israel failed too. So Israel, here's the story of Babel. They come into the promised land. They're there for a period of time. Like, hey, we want a king like the other nations. Give us, give us a king, God. Samuel is he's broken by that. And God says, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. And so you get Saul. And it looks good for a moment until Saul changes direction. And then you get King David and a man after God's own heart. But David sins too. And then from there, the kings begin to get worse and worse and worse. And the Israel, the nation of Israel begins to turn away from God and they worship idols. They fail too. They did not trust in God's covenant and they did not obey His commands. But what they did was they sought their own way. 
And what did this lead to? It led to captivity and scattering. And the same thing happened to Israel that happened to Babylon. And throughout the Old Testament, it seems that God's people would never fully live out God's commands. They would never receive the full blessing. They would never be able to bless the world. From Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and others, they all fail. And so when we come to this story, our response is, we are just like them. Unable to keep the covenant of God. Unable to obey His commands. We cannot, on our own, live up to what God desires. We, like Babel, have insecurities. And it leads us to outward pride. And thereby, we have set ourselves up against God. But it doesn't have to be this way. You see, what our God has done, He has made a way for us to be fully obedient. And that's in Jesus Christ. Jesus, God in the flesh, came down to earth in this messiness to live a perfect life. And then He offered that life up on the cross. He died the death that we deserved. He was buried, but death couldn't hold Him down. He was raised to newness of life. And now He offers that life and His righteousness to us if we will humble ourselves and submit our lives to Him and trust Him. That's what the Gospel is. And so Jesus offers salvation to be made right with God through the forgiveness of sins, being brought into right relationship with God. And in Christ, we now have the power to live out His commands and to be a blessing to those around us. And Jesus offers this, this to anybody. Anyone who would believe. Jesus is the blessing that the world needs. Jesus is the one that the world is actually desiring. And anyone can be brought into God's kingdom. Anyone can know the gospel. This is God's plan all along. That God desires a world to be filled with diverse worshipers from different places and times and cultures. But Babylon stood against this. Against God's plan. And God had to confuse their language. But after Jesus' resurrection, He ascends to the Father. And what did He say? He promised the Holy Spirit would come. And the Spirit would give them power to be witnesses all across the world. And when He does that, when the Spirit comes, at that moment in salvation history, Acts 2 tells us what a wonderful event. That God's Spirit was poured out on God's people. And those nearby actually thought that the disciples were drunk because they were hearing they were speaking in their own languages, but hearing uh, in their own language as well. Because in Acts, it tells us that this is where Babel is undone. Pentecost is the reversal of Babel and the confusion around languages. The gospel can now be heard in any language, at any place, at any time. So now the entire world should hear about the Savior who came and gave His life for them and invites them into the same opportunity to make God's name great. This is why we talk to you so many times about a global mission. This is why we always talk about making mature disciples who impact our world. This is why we talk about seeing a disciple-making movement spread from here, Wake Forest and Youngville, all across North Carolina, all across the world, because this is what God wants. This is His plan. This is why we send a good portion of our money away. It's why we spend our time and energy and effort to raise up disciples, to raise you up to be mature so that the world can know the name of Jesus. 
And it's why we will commit ourselves to raising up the next generation of pastors and missionaries and church planters, to raise up a next generation of, of business people and teachers and doctors and students to be sent all across the world. Because this is about God's kingdom and it's not about ours. And if we ever, ever get that confused, may God remind us of what He's doing. But see, the story's not done. Uh, we give ourselves to this because God is still inviting people into His kingdom and His plan. Jesus stands as a salvation. He stands as the Savior of the world. But the serpent is still working. Satan is still working. And as I said, there are two kingdoms to choose. Satan is working against God and he's working against us. And one day we'll rise up against him. In the, in the book of Revelation, chapter 18, it tells us that this final nation, this final a kingdom of Babylon will stand against God and its sins will be piled up like a tower towards God. But it will fail. It will fail. And it will not succeed. Instead, Jesus has purchased a people for Himself from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And it is Christ and His people who will stand against all evil, sin, and suffering. And the reason we go after a world Mission is because this is true in Revelation 7. When John is, is he's receiving the revelation of what's going to happen, he sees there will be a people that will outnumber any number that he can give. From every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. They will proclaim the salvation of God and make God's name great among the nations. This is why we do this. Because we know that God wins in the end. And so much so, God says, I'm going to have people from every point in history, every kind of people, every culture, every kind of language, they're going to be my people. And then, then when Jesus writes all the wrongs, there's going to be a city that comes down from heaven here on earth and we're going to reign with Him forever. It won't be the city of Babel. It's going to be the city of Jesus where we get to reign for Him forever and we get to make His name famous for all eternity. That's where the story's going. And I pray, church, that we would be a blessing to the nations by sharing the gospel and making disciples to declare the praise of Jesus. This is why we're here. To make God's name famous. And you're invited into God's kingdom and God's task. Whose kingdom are you a part of? And whose name will you make great? Pray with me. God, I ask you today that you would continually protect us from our insecurities, from our pride. Will you make us a people who are laser focused on your plan and your kingdom? Will you help us See people come to faith here in Wake Forest in Youngsville. Will you help us send people all across the world? God, I pray right now that you would begin to work on people in this room that we may send one day for the sake of your name and not ours. God, we confess to you that we often forget. We often get sidetracked. And so God, would you help us today focus on your kingdom and not ours? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.